Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne, and here we are with Glenn David Gold, the author of I Will Be Complete. I got the, I got the title right, yeah? Good, yeah. Both title and author together. You did, you did well. That's good. We're off to a rollicking start, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. For, I, I got scared there for a second. As I was talking, I was like, and my mind's going to go blank. And it did it. Yeah. Well, if I strike fear into you, that's good. It's a good start. Yeah. I'm Glenn David Gold, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Very good. I love it. Cool. cool. Yeah. How do, you, how do you know how to do that so Get on the Drinks with Tony show. One of the first questions I want to ask you, because you, you come from you, you're a novelist first, from what I from what I see, you've written novels and now you've written a memoir. What was that experience like? Was it kind of like did you go go to it as a novelist, kind of in mind, or I don't. I, I mean, novels are what I've ended up publishing, but okay. I write a lot of other stuff. I've written a lot of journalism, a lot of like celebrity profile pieces and things, and. I had thought that might help me in writing this, and it didn't really. Uh, it turned out that memoir is its own weird hybrid between journalism and fiction, um, with the tools you need to use for it. So it took me, well, first of all, I mean, the book basically took me about nine years to write, and I'd say the first five years were about getting the voice on the page, first page. And uh, I had rejected a lot of my fiction tools. I wanted to start and do something fresh and different, and I didn't do a very good job of it at first. But by the time I got to the draft that worked, I had incorporated that sort of set of observations that you need to do journalism with every tool in fiction except making stuff up. And I think those two together made the story. Then that's intriguing because, um, well, it's intriguing. (laughs) <laughs> but, but beyond that, um, do, do you feel like with your other tools as like a journalist and a fiction writer, if you came straight to a memoir, it may have been easier? Were there, where was your head maybe overthinking some, uh, some of that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not like, I mean, you know how it goes when you have something creative that's on the back burner. I've always known I wanted to tell this story somehow. And at times it was because if I wanted to do it in fiction, at times I wanted to do it as straight as possible as memoir. And I don't think that there's any one point where I just made the decision to do it. It's just that it, it, after I'd finished my last novel, I took up about six different projects and tried them and none of them worked. And this one just kept on spinning out and it just kept annoying me. Uh, and actually, I had like a list of all these different, I had maybe 15 ideas, and I realized, say, five of them were all memoir-based, and I wondered if they were joined together, if I could actually just like kill a lot of birds with one stone, that maybe there was something that was bothering me that I needed to get out of my system. And that's what led to the bad draft, I'd say. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it, it took me a while to get to the other side of that. And what I love about it is, because I, I grew up in the San Francisco area and I lived in San Francisco so many years and now I've lived in LA for a while the juxtaposition of you growing up in those different especially at that time you just really bring us to a different time and I feel like I got to learn about Los Angeles back then too it's just yeah Los Angeles just intrigues me I, where I, when I was a kid I wished I was down here 
especially during the punk rock. Like you talk about punk rock in the book. Yeah. Let's just go on punk rock for a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I was kind of a tourist in that. I oh really? I, I and I bought a few of the albums. I went to that one show in the early eighties. I mean, to was more that the Dead Kennedys. Yeah, Dead Kennedys, DOA, um, Minutemen, and Holy Smokes. Who was the? We totally missed the opening band. Whoever it is, my friend, my friend Owen would remember what that was. But when I was up in San Francisco, then I saw the Dead Kennedys a bunch of times with you know and a few other uh, kind of local punk bands. But but I was never you know into the scene. I was always just you know a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy. And you know I like all kinds of music. And the band that I really fell in love with was X um, because they were they weren't just punk. Like punk had a certain kind of you know beer swilling sheen to it and. X had that, but they were something larger in, in its way. I mean, whatever they called it, American music at the time, that went along with Los Lobos and the Blasters. And I think that they were, I think it was just the wrong time for them. I mean, I think that they were five years too early in some way. That if they had come out, you know, between, say, the mid-'80s and when Nirvana come out, they might have had more people paying attention to them. Yeah. yeah. How, how many times have you seen X? Oh God, um, twenty maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, no, probably maybe maybe like fifteen. But yeah. yeah, all the way from with Billy Zoom to Tony Gokison to Dave Alvin and yeah. Um, and I but I haven't seen them since. I think the last time I saw them was like two thousand six or something when they got back together again for the first time in a while. And you know they're always fabulous. John Doe blew me away with his solo records. That guy's a machine. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things about moving out to. Uh, West Marin at the time when he was living there, he sort of you know running room with the park market and stuff. Actually, it's something I took out of the book, but um, that summer that I was working in this bookstore in Westwood, it was my punk rock summer. I was show- I used to my my section was the I had uh, mystery and I had history and I had um, I didn't have the mystery section. Excuse me, that that was Barbara's section. I had uh, the history section. And I had the music section and. Uh, I got pretty familiar with the books in the music section. I tried to order more books on punk and stuff. And uh, for some reason, I kept on running into John Doe in Westwood, like over and over and over again. I would keep on running into him. And the first time I ran into him, I was uh, in line at the ATM. I was just like doing something else. I look up and he's like, he's actually, he's like one person ahead of me and he's looking in my direction for no reason. And this is kind of, this is me. Whoa, like that. (laughs) And he went, oh, and like turn around. He just like eyes forward. And then, like, I wasn't paying any attention. I was like, God, that was really embarrassing. And so, like, you know, I went into the drugstore. I was, like, staying in line and, and, like, realized he, I, like, look up and he's standing ahead of me in line. He, like, gives me this dirty look again, leaves. And so I go back to the bookstore and tell people in the bookstore this story about how I keep on running into John Doe. They don't know who John Doe is. Like, you know, there's more books for you to shelve. So I had this big pile of books to take to the music section. And there's, like, a customer crouching in the music section. Excuse me. Stands up as John Doe. It's like, oh God! He's like was really mad at me at this point. Like I was following him around. Yeah. So you're like, look at my name tag. I'm yeah, here. here I am. Yeah. yeah. And um, so he ended up. You ended up living in the same area as him. And yeah, yeah. He lived. Uh, I can't. I don't know exactly what town it was he was in, but he was somewhere in uh, Marin. So I used to run into him there as well. He did. Uh, he would do the uh, the local shows out for uh, KWMR, um, uh, the Sweethearts of the Radio show, the Sweethearts of the Radio show. Yeah. Um, when you were working at the bookstore, did you know that you wanted to become a writer? When did that bug start? That's when I was three. I wanted to be a writer. Really? Yeah, sure. Yeah. How did you know when you were three? Well, I mean, it's all muddy. I mean, my mom really wanted to be a writer. Uh, 
I sometimes wonder if my mom had really wanted to be a singer, whether I'd been a musician instead. Uh, I it, it was just accepted in my family that writing was a noble profession and something really? to pursue. Yeah, my father, uh, who is not well, he, you know, he's written technical articles and stuff, but he's you know he's a uh, an engineer, but he. Uh, he shares the name of a writer, Herb Gold, and uh, I think he's always wished that he was that that person. So it's just kind of in the air since I was born. And, and uh, now, does Herb Gold go by Herbert Gold, or I can't remember because th- th- he's from San Francisco, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's oh, excuse me. Can we? Second. Sometimes there's just some, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. No, the, the that Herbert Gold lives in uh, Russian Hill. Yeah, yeah. So writing so intimately about your family, your father, and your mom. How did how did that how did that feel during the writing process? Did you have a oh god I can't say this or did you have any crisis during? I, I love that you're just shaking your head. No, oh. tell tell me how. Uh, a lot of therapy, I guess. Uh, it wasn't something I was doing to them. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, I had things happen to me. They were there. Yeah. And I think that as long as I knew I was doing everything with compassion, I could hold my head up high about it. Like, uh that I like that. Like, uh, like uh, even when you're doing a memoir, you're writing characters to an extent. So you have to kind of love all your characters. Well, this is what I. This is my theory. I don't know if it's yours, but even your antagonists or the people against the hero, you have to love them for their angle because they're the hero of their own story. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't though. I mean, when they write, they write out of contempt. Yeah. And those yeah. are the people that win prizes. <laughs> Because yeah. critics mistake contempt for genius, yeah. because it's a, an emotion they're familiar with, and it's not three-dimensional. And I don't understand why people don't get the three-dimensional story is so much better than the "that's bad, that's bad, I'm angry at that." Well, how do you think most critics read books? Ugh. I mean, yeah, not know. you know, not 100 percent of the time. I have to say, my the reception of this has been you know really really good. People yeah. have been really have gotten it, and they've understood that everything is done out of compassion. Because I think. Especially in this case, if there was like a moment where I had any sort of scorn for anybody, it would come thundering through pretty easily. Yeah. You know, yeah. And um, book critics, uh, <laughs> I've never been able to review books. I can't review books. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I get called to do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I do it, but only if I actually like the book. Yeah. You know, and there's been a couple times I've sent them back where I'm just like, I'm not your guy on this. Yeah. Yeah, because there's just so much work and so much heart and soul that goes, you know, to a novel or a memoir. And then someone has maybe eight hours to put together a piece and read the book, and that just doesn't do it justice. I, yeah. I can't figure it out. Yeah, no, I, I always take a lot more time than that, and I always try to give it, you know, I give it the benefit of all doubts. And then also, I realize that I'm a weird reader in a lot of ways, because, you know, as a writer... I don't know why writers seem should be qualified to review books. It's it's 
I don't know. It's, uh, it's sort of like asking drivers to evaluate how an engine is built or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you might know a little bit, but not everything. Um, so I try to make room for the other readers. I mean, there's plenty of like, there's plenty of writers who I know objectively based on how other people react are great. That, like Haruki Murakami. People love Haruki Murakami. And I can't tell you how many times I've given a reading somewhere, a bookstore person very excitedly gives me a Haruki Murakami book and says, I know you're going to love this. And there's apparently just something in my writing that seems to remind people of that. And great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you have the reaction, but it's like I read, turn the pages, and I have no connection to this stuff. But... But it doesn't mean, I mean, he's obviously quite good, but it just doesn't do it. Just, from reading that, I understand people have different reading experiences than I do. They, they pull different interactions out of the words than I do. Now, I haven't been able to get through one of his books. I'll, I gave like Norwegian Wood, like 100 pages. I gave a couple, you know, uh, and everyone's just like, oh, you have to read him. I just can't. I have never finished. Yeah, yeah same here. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's intriguing that people compare you to him, but at, the, at that point, that just says that's the book, you know, your book is their experience kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you give up after a while being able to control anybody's reaction to your book. Um, so, yeah. yeah, but it's fine. I mean, I'm, it's, it's, I, I, I'm glad for the mystery, you know? Yeah. What, um, are you, have you, have you toured with this book or done some readings? I am, okay, cool. How, how's that been going? Oh, it's great. I've had a really good time so far. Uh, read in, uh, let's see, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boston, D.C., New York, uh, Atlanta. I'll be going to Nashville, maybe Texas, um, and uh, do another L.A. reading. Uh, and, uh, What's the next L.A. reading? Uh, Romans in September. I don't know the exact oh, okay. date, but yeah, but it should be out there. Um, and I, it's been really good. People, it's still early on, so not a ton of people have read the thing yet, but they've seen the reviews and they come and they hang out. They seem to be entertained by it. Yeah. It's a good revival meeting kind of thing. Get in there and all, all get very excited. So, yeah. 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 And um, also, what I what I loved about the narrative again was the San Francisco Los Angeles contrast. Um, we were talking earlier. So you just moved back to LA. Was that six months ago? About yeah. Yeah, we got a place down here almost a year ago, um, and I moved into my place in February. Um, it took a while, but yeah, uh, yeah. San I've moved back and forth between Los Angeles and San Francisco repeatedly throughout my entire life. Um, I was born in Hollywood in 1964, lived on the beach until 1974, uh, moved to San Francisco until 77, then Ojai, then New York, then back to, uh, where was I back to after that? Oh, back to Berkeley. Uh, and I lived in the East Bay from 1984 to 1995, and then went down to UC Irvine and lived down in LA, moved to Ojai, then back up to San Francisco in 2007, then Point Reyes Station, then back to San Francisco. And now back down here. So there you go. It's the and that's why that, that I feel like the character of San Francisco and L.A. comes through so well in the book. Yeah. It's nice to hear that. I get a kick out of it. Um, and you just reminded me because you said East Bay. Yeah. You dropped uh, 
the uh, college station Calix uh, in the book. What was it like to discover when you discovered Calix? Because this is back, I mean, I don't think people realize now how much access they have to music. Yeah, no. But back then, the access was top 40 radio or, you know, album oriented rock. What was that day where you went left of the dial and was like, what is this? Well, it was, it happened kind of in pieces because when. This is something a lot of people don't really remember, but in 1980, 81, for some weird reason in Ojai, we could pick up um, K-Rock. Oh, yeah. When you could turn on Rodney Bingenheimer, and you got got college radio that way. I mean, you got punk. You got a lot of stuff. It was not completely as mediated as it is now. I mean, they they eventually, you know, became much more corporate and everything. I guess successful or whatever it is they're looking for, but but like uh, when I went off to my freshman year at college, was which is at Wesleyan, there was Westview, which had a. It's like I understood what college radio was because there was a great variety of stuff, but there wasn't really much punk being played there. Like for them, their you know their excitement about having college radio to stretch out meant that you could play you know all of Rosalita by Bruce Springsteen or you know have like some 13 minute right. song you know like you could play yes for 13 minutes instead of anything else but it wasn't really focused on or Jonathan Richmond everybody loved Jonathan Richmond out there it was, it was like yeah. to a fanatical yeah. but then I think that being exposed to punk was just scary to me at first like I didn't get it you know it just just seemed like just angry and I didn't pick up about why like there was no there was no transition for me uh, yeah. into why they were so mad, um, but I I got into the spirit of it pretty quickly. I mean, uh, it was, but it was a club also. There was a feeling about. I know there was an idea of everything is included, but there were certain signs and signifiers on your body of what you were into and everything. And, right. And you you were a member of a tribe and a tribe within a tribe. Yeah. And, and I was just kind of on the outside of that. When I first heard like punk rock, it was Black Flag, My War, and I grew I grew up in a weird like religious family, so I had no access to anything, and I'm, a, I'm you know I'm a pubescent testosterone freaked out kid, and when I heard that I was like somebody gets my anger, I didn't even know what my anger was, and then I just connected immediately. I couldn't go to the punk shows, but I can hide and listen to this satanic. You know. Oh, now I remember this. This was actually in high school. Um, it's so like my junior year in high school, there was, a, there was a kid who was from Pasadena, a kid named Randy, and Randy was always ahead of us as far as music went. Like, he he was always like an album ahead of everybody else somehow. I don't know if his family worked in the music industry or if he just like, I know he spent weekends, he would go to clubs and shows and stuff underage. And I remember him coming back with the, I think it was the uh, White Girl Adults books, Danger House uh, uh, 45 and playing X for us for the first time oh yeah and everybody was laughing at him and he had the Ramones and everybody was like everyone just thought it was really silly bad music and making fun of him and I remember he listened to that like stuff exclusively sort of to piss us off you know that was his thing and then I remember right before he left school he's like he got rid of all his punk albums He's like, he said, I'm tired of that stuff. You guys are going to be listening to that in five years. 
you all are going to be listening to this in five years. You're all in high school. You're all going to be claiming you listened to X. You did not. You were listening to Neil Young. He's right. And, he's, and it's like, well, what are you listening to now, Randy? And he brought out Prince, Prince's first album. Oh. And he, he had the, the poster, you know, of, of Prince wearing this, like, little underpants that he put on the wall. It's like, you guys are going to be listening to this guy in ten years, you know. And, no, we aren't. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, Randy. Like, yeah, so... And so, what's, do you, have you been in touch with Randy, and what is he listening to now, so we can know? Right, no, we always think he's going to be listening to marching band music or something like that, <laughs> and who knows? No, I have not, I've not kept in touch. It's probably, it's probably Randy's kids that, you know, are on top of it at this point. Yeah. yeah. When, when you write a book or you have a memoir come out, do people come out of the woodwork from, like, you know, years ago that you haven't heard from in a while? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'd, those have to be very various uh, degrees of, uh, oh, this is nice. Oh, my God, I don't want to know that person. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was better stories about that. It's all been of a piece, more or less, which is, I think, people, pe- people who knew me well didn't know the whole thing. I mean, the story is ridiculously complicated. And I think a lot of people didn't take in how much stuff had actually happened around me. And I think for a lot, you know, past is not really the past, right? I mean, for a lot of people felt like something had happened 30 years ago, they'd be settled about it. But to read about it again seems to bring it up again. But I don't, there's, you know, uh, nobody has, like, come after me yet, generally. But most of the people who uh, have responded have been positive and, you know, and I, and feel like they understand why I wrote the book. Yeah. Was there a point like, I, this is this is this happens to me when I'm writing. If I'm writing something really personal, I get really emotional about it, and sometimes I get really dark. But once it gets to a point where it's there's a it's going to be published, then I'm totally separated from it. I don't know if that's the same with you. No, no, I, I, you know. I had a great therapist years ago, yeah. and I processed a lot of this stuff. I think, you know, the most emotional reaction I have to things is when I'm reading it aloud to people and I f- sense their reaction. It's like it's a moment of communion and community. I feel if you're doing it right, there's a feeling of empathy that builds with the audience where I'm hearing them hear it for the first time. And there's you know I have kind of an elation with that which is nice but no when I no, I didn't have any there's nothing therapeutic in it for me to write it but it was mostly cold like in a good way yeah and getting and getting that tonality um, when, when, when you when you found the tone that worked for your narrative did you know you had the tone or did it, or did it have to sit for a while and then you realized wait a second that that draft or that, that well I wrote two complete very bad drafts and then I started signing up for open mic nights basically oh yeah yeah and I would write something new in the afternoon and take it and listen for room tone and I got lucky in that I had I kind of had a well it's not lucky I mean what is it it's doing this gig basically in my head ever since I was born um, I sort of had a I had a, a working idea of what might get me and the audience in the same space so I went with that with the first thing I read and it worked 
kind of. And so I knew, it's like the places it didn't work, I knew immediately why. I could rewrite it, I went out again, did the thing again, and it was better. I was like, okay, this is the voice of it. Um, and the voice is based in part on um, a Vivian Gornick book that was given to me by my friend uh, Rob Spillman, who wrote a memoir uh, called All Tomorrow's Parties. Rob, Rob and I both had the same mistaken idea about memoir being journalism. And, and uh, Vivian Gornick gives a really good prescription for that to make yourself a character. Don't try to be objective. Be, definitely be subjective. And give the audience a focal point for their transgressive feelings. And when I, as soon as I understood that the I in the piece was going to be a standard both for me and for the reader, it made sense to me that if I'm standing in front of an audience, I'm saying something I already believe. If they're also on board, then the voice is serving that purpose of being the conduit. Does that make any sort of sense? It makes a lot of sense, and I really love that you kind of workshopped your stuff at open mics. Did yeah. you do Did you do a lot of the pieces of the book that way? Or? Yeah, I mean, probably six different pieces from the yeah. book, maybe seven. Uh, some of them also I knew were not appropriate to read aloud because they were too intense and too deep into the book. But I did it anyway to kind of get to know whether they were effective or not, and they were. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, the first time I heard that, and then I actually started implementing it myself, was David Sedaris does that. Yeah, yeah. He's he says a lot of times when he's doing those readings for colleges, I guess yeah. where they're paying a lot of money, he's also taking notes on what's get what's getting. Yeah, him. I've seen him read right out of his journals and like make little tick marks in the yeah. margin. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, do we really, David? We have to pay 35 bucks to see you workshop your stuff. So you can, so we're we're helping you essentially. Yeah, Thanks. but it's also to me, I'm a process guy. I'm interested in the process oh, of stuff. Yeah. You know, I love you know preliminary layouts of artwork and uh, drafts of symphonies and you know, yeah. I, I, I say that facetiously. I'm the guy that loves the DVD extras, and I want to know every little thing that happened. What, what happened that one day that was on a, you know, that seemed like that was a normal scene, but everyone lost their shit on the other side of the camera? Well, it's also interesting when those things are a totally locked box, when there's just like, there's the book, and there's no other information about it. Like, yeah. you know, you know, your SOL if you want to find anything else out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the... I, when when uh, Kerouac's on the road, scroll came out. I flipped out over that. And I just I just just to, just to be within five inches of it behind the glass was probably the best day of my life. Wow, yeah, yeah it, it hasn't gotten better since. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's early still, you know. It's, it's early. Yeah, 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 I got yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, but just to just to you know, and I, there was um there was another artist. I can't remember who it was, and it was just his notes and his notebooks. And they had all his art, art on the wall. I didn't give a shit about the art. I wanted to see the markings and what his handwriting looked like. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe you geek out the uh, same way, or I don't know. I don't know some stuff. I mean, I, uh, I mean, you know, I'm a collector. I uh, collect comic book artwork. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so... The margin notes are always very interesting to me. When it stopped being Stan's margin notes and started being Jack Kirby's instead, like what that meant and all that. Yeah. That's right, because you got into comic books really young. And that, that's, that's so cool. But that, that's a different world for me because I couldn't do that when I was a kid. So right. having a parent. Right, right. Um, anyway, let's. let's uh, 
why, why should I segue from there? I don't know why my, maybe, I do have to talk to my therapist because we went religious and then I went, let's talk about something else. So yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's my, what's your therapist's phone number, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she'd send everybody to her. She was great. Yeah. She was, yeah, yeah. Did you, um, did you just have one therapist or did you go to several? No, I, I had, I had uh, over the course of years, I had three very good therapists. And my, actually, I think they lined up with my couple years in my 30s, couple years in my 40s, yeah. early 50s. Yeah. Was there, was there, so did you start going to therapy in your 30s? No, when I was four. Really? Wow. What, what type of therapy? You were going with your mom. No. You were going alone. Yeah. Wait, what type of therapy was that? Was it a lot Psychoanalysis. of... Psychoanalysis. Yeah. Psychoanalysis four times a week from the ages of four and a half to nine. Wow. Here's something that... The perspective that you have, and I, and I have a, my, my, own, um, my own biases on this. The San Francisco versus Los Angeles yeah. Yeah. cultures. Yeah. I feel like you're probably one of the very few people who has so much range of the years and decades of both uh, yeah. cities. Um, you know, how, how, do, how do you feel about the, the different times of the different cities? I mean, we could probably talk about this yeah, for sure. four hours. Could, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, first of all, you know, I have to acknowledge my perspective here is that I'm a white guy who has always had, you know, five bucks in the bank, um, who in L.A., I spent most of my time somewhere close to the 405 freeway on the west side, you know. So I didn't go that, you know. I mean, I know, I know Hollywood to the beach, from a certain period, maybe downtown to the beach, and then, and then but but during those years, yeah. it was so different than what it is now. Apparently so, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I was so I was born uh, in Hollywood, but moved almost immediately to Corona del Mar, the beach, when it was still just five thousand people down there, when it was not yet the explosion of wealth that it is now. It was like it was like being living in. Um, uh, I don't know, it was like living in Big Sur or something almost. I mean, it was very, it was far away, it was isolated, there's a lot of surfers down there, and there was just the beginnings of wealth was starting to be dropped down there. Uh, it was conservative, uh, it was the Nixon years, uh, it was Watergate, uh, but people were still clinging to Republican ideals at the time, and uh, it was overwhelmingly crushingly white I mean one of the things my mom kept saying was that she wanted to move out of there was because uh, we were at a Denny's one day and a black guy walked in apparently I was like five and was just staring at him or like I was eight maybe I don't know but she yeah. said she realized that I did not see a lot of black people yeah. and she wanted to get me out of that um, but I I in San Francisco when I was there in the 70s I lived in Pacific Heights uh, so there was a lot of privilege involved in there, but also uh, San Francisco was a very small, still weirdly integrated town. And I would say that what was happening at that time was that your day job was just something to keep you off the street for whatever you really wanted to do, which is basically fuck as many people as possible and have a good time and like fly a kite. That seemed to be what everybody wanted to do. And it was this post-hippie pre-me-decade sort of human potential movement where uh, everybody figured that if we were all just socially nice to each other, things would work out okay, which it didn't. Um, but it was a very relaxed sort of time to grow up in, you know. Um, and so I kind, of, I kind of got in there in between 
Altamont and Jim Jones, you know, for that kind of period where there was not a hell of a lot of violence going on. And on the other side of Jim Jones was, of, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, Harvey Milk and then uh, AIDS and everything else happened. And the city got, like, hit by big blasts of reality, you know, over and over again. And then by that time I was moved back down to L.A. again. And L.A. in the 80s was... It was the beginnings, in a way, of box office being a huge thing. Oh, that's right. So Westwood was flooded with celebrities every Friday to go see the current movies, whatever they were, because those were important. You know, and then it was also uh, music, which had been kind of finding a transitional phase, uh, found new wave and got like that burst of it again. And there's, you know the knack and the go-go's and things like that were on the airwaves and so to be in LA one of, one of the things that is not in the memoir but it's like Owen rode his bike right through the go-go set for we, Our Lips Are Sealed when they're playing in the fountain um, on the what is it little Santa Monica and uh, Wilshire where they intersect there's a fountain there and the go-go's were swimming in the fountain when he rode his bike by oh funny. yeah so um, you know my Impressions of the two places is always that there was a rivalry between them, but each one of them had a secret soft spot for the other. Uh-huh. You know, it was yeah. kind of a grudging respect. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I love both cities for their on many different ways, and I you know, I, I have more hate towards San Francisco, but I grew up there. Yeah. So I think a lot of that is my problem too. But when it comes to the Dodgers and the Giants, I always have to root for the Giants. Now, I, now, it must be really confusing for you. I don't know if you're a baseball fan. You're not. Then it's not confusing at all. Uh, so. Sports. Never, never learned anything about sports. Because oh, right. yeah. Yeah. the Giants and Dodgers are playing tonight. So I'm looking forward to the Dodgers dying like the scum they are. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah, no, I, I don't have I, – uh, I, never, I never got into the sports thing at all. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I got into baseball. I don't get into any other sport. Yeah. And then I don't know. Maybe, maybe because I haven't had as much therapy, so I can channel my like real feelings through something else. Possibly. I don't know. I uh, I, I just my my dad my grandfather was heavily into sports, and my dad just did not teach me anything about him. Yeah. And um. Yeah, that's it's just so crazy because like in the '80s in San Francisco, if you happen to be on Union Square. I was one of those Jehovah's Witnesses with the Watchtower and Awake Whoa, <laughs> with really? my dad. Yeah. Oh, wow. oh man. Yeah. Yeah. That was my San Francisco experience. You had a different experience than I did. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 It's where it was just like, um, it's so much fun to hear about what actually was happening. Yeah. I was one of the person people who, when Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door, I'd just throw it open. I'd say, Jew. I still do it. Yeah. Yeah, I did it about two weeks ago. I was really? at my girlfriend's front door, and there was a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses rang the doorbell. I just yeah. like threw it, rang open. I went Jew like that. And, and I said, you know, and they 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 double back for a minute. Like, well, we have it. I said, ah, come on, quick, faster, come on, you got to come up with something, you know. And they didn't. So I would say Gazotite. <laughs> well, that's good. You would you would have gotten a second look in that case. Yeah. yeah. But that's just now. Um, as a Jehovah's Witness, you can't say Gesundheit or bless you because it's against their religion. So maybe they're thinking every day. Yeah. 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 Here I do. Here I go. I got my cords all tied up. Why? Because it's fun. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just, just the, what's great about, so from my perspective and my relationship to your uh, reading your memoir as I get to see 
not only what I felt like I missed out on, but how you know, growing up with like, you know, parents, parents being like openly talking about sex and here you can go on a date, you know, things like that, which was so abnormal to me. Yeah. I get it. To, I get to see it from a perspective where it's excruciating for the other side too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine having overly protective parents that, that is so out of my worldview. I cannot yeah. even begin to understand what that would be like much, probably the same yeah. It's just like, you know, reading me being from Mars or something, given right. how much freedom I had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and at the same time, with that freedom, though, do you feel like it, um, well, do you, I, did it, did it feel like it came at a cost, or did you feel like you had to learn, um, learn life lessons quicker? Well, There's all kinds of ways to learn lessons, and luckily the traumas that were inflicted on me were pretty pedestrian in the way that they're solvable and they didn't kill me. You know, I didn't. Um, whatever lasting psychological damage I have is pretty. You know, it's it's not that bad at all. Um, there's a lot of different situations where it could have gone a lot worse. You know, I. Uh, I grew up in a house where there's not a lot of rules and not a lot of uh, monitoring of, of behavior and things could have just gone really bad really fast but didn't so I got to see a lot of adults behaving badly I got to make some moral choices rather quickly I grew up sort of fast other people grow up fast but sometimes it's because you know people are shooting at them you know I had to grow up fast because I was living on my own um, and so those are different situations. I wouldn't trade it, you know. I, I I have friends who had much more together parents who gave them a lot more support, and it seemed, I wouldn't do it that way. I mean, I I I like where I ended up. So I'm sure there's trade-offs. Um, you know, talk to any of my ex-girlfriends about you know how I am emotionally, uh, but I. I think, yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it differently. No. So I'll have to get your ex-girlfriend's numbers for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. You can find them all over the net. They're they're there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I drop a joke and then I forget the uh, thought that we were going on. Um, so you, you also you've also done journalism. Um, um, what's what's like one of the celebrities that you've. Well, the only, the only major thing I did was with David Blaine, and I would never do it again. Uh, it was just a screwy experience from beginning to end. Uh, God, how to, how to tell this in less than five hours. Um, it's like in 2002 or 2003 sometime, uh, I noticed the Society of American Magicians was going to try to the first time do what they call the perfect song, which is the perfect song in half of a woman in a way that has... The compartment is completely flat to the table, and there's it, it looks completely real when you're doing it. And uh, I was interested in covering that for either the New Yorker or the New York Times because they were doing it in New York. And it's a funny story. It's just weird that someone would think that sawing a woman in half was the signature trick of the 20th century, and why, and you know, the sociology behind the whole thing, and how the trick was invented in the first time, first place, which is a good story. So I brought that to the New York Times. I'm like, great, we'll take it. Um, by the way, um, what do you think David Blaine would think of this? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, he's he doesn't really do 
tricks like that. He's more of a you know more of a stunt person. And he said, "Well, why don't you interview him and ask him what he thinks about it?" And I said, "Oh, well, oh, he talked to me, huh?" And they said, "Well, yeah, you know, you'll be review- you'll be interviewing him for the New York Times." And so by the time I signed the contract, it was I was doing an interview with Dave McBlain. That was it changed that they 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 stopped me of doing all the other stuff. And I was supposed to write a profile of him. They wanted me to write a profile. And the long the the short version is that I had to do five page one rewrites for the New York Times. They were not clear with me about what they wanted editorially in it. And when they finally were clear with me editorially, it was not the article I wanted to write at all. It was not how I felt about the piece, but I just needed to get the fucking thing out of my hair. And I gave them what they wanted. And on the other side, he is a very needy guy who exceptionally talented artistically tormented and very concerned with how he comes off in print and also tried like hell to manipulate me in ways that were ridiculous like he uh, he did things like he hired a dwarf to stand in a men's room like in a men's room stall so on the toilet seat so I couldn't be able to see his feet and he was going to throw dice David Blaine was going to throw dice so they'd go under the men's room stall and then come out. The dwarf would have switched them. Is the idea? Yeah. Yeah. And he... It didn't work. Like, it was a weird type of thing to do. And then later... Yeah, so then later we're walking down the street and there's this, like, homeless little person walks up past us goes, Hey, are you the guy that does magic? And he does a magic trick for the guy, for, for David Blaine. And it didn't... It was like... What are the odds? I have never seen a homeless little person in New York in 2002 before, anyway. And the guy looked kind of familiar to me, anyway. It's like, he looked like he had a SAG card, anyhow. Right, right. And it just was an artificial interaction. And so I put it into the article as if it might be a setup of some sort. And, of course, it was. It totally was. He'd hired him to do this. And he did all kinds of things like that throughout to try to pull something over on me. He had a... What I realized pretty quickly was a fake production meeting about about his show that was going to be on the air. It was all staged for me. And it was trying to mess with me in a way that just didn't work because I didn't even understand what was going on or what, what was supposed to be being messed with. It was just a weird, awkward situation. I, yeah, I don't get that in any way at all. Why would they think they can get something past a journalist who who, who actually? Oh, I'm really I'm 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 a dunderhead. I'm very easily influenced. I'm, I am. It's just that it just the the setups were not executed well enough to have the effect they were supposed to have. Yeah. How long did you have to spend with them to? Like four months. So, uh, like on a daily or a weekly? I don't even remember at this point. It's been a, I've repressed most of the experience, you know. Just wrote the thing, got it out, you know. It was done. He did his stunt, you know, and then that was it. Now, I've tried to saw a girl in half, but they, they always bleed. Well, see, now here's the thing. Of course, in my, in my novel, uh, my first book, Carter Beats the Devil, uh, the magician's not allowed to saw women in half. His mother won't let him because she sees the misogyny inherent in it and it's true that uh, Percy Tibbetts what's his name Selbit spelled spelled backwards whatever that is he uh, Selbit invented a whole bunch of incredibly misogynistic tricks including that one after his wife left him he's one destroying a girl the pincushion girl all that sort of stuff sawing a woman in half all directly based on his wife leaving him really I didn't know the wow and that's in your first novel 
Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something to check out. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't even think of that because I, I just, the, the magicians are just on the peripheral for me. It's not like I... Yeah, but if you think about it, like, yeah. but just like think about it, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Really, like what other, think of another profession where like they're, you just sort of like casually, like, you know... Do violent things to women. Yeah, like that. Yeah. And it just it's just oh yeah, you're just allowed to do that. Yeah. 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 And then ta da, it yeah, wasn't yeah. violent and everyone's happy. Yeah, I mean the best best one of the best magic tricks I saw was David Copperfield doing the reverse of that where he gets sawed in half and you're not expecting it to happen. And it's it was beautifully executed. I know I know he's a lot of people who are very heavily into magic don't like him for whatever reason, but I, I found him to be rock solid. He was a really good magician, yeah. And um, so, uh, with your first novel, you have a fascination with uh, magic, or did you go into your novel and say, I have to research this? It was the second thing, yeah. yeah. Like, I just, I realized that there hadn't been a lot of novels that treated magic making like a quotidian exercise, like, you know, roll out of bed, have coffee, and figure out how you're going to, like, float a woman across the stage, you know, right. that kind of thing. And yeah. so I decided to make it just like a guy's job. What it was like. And did you get an appreciation for it that you didn't have? Before? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, 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 it turns out to be really difficult. Yeah. 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 Was it, did, did you write it before you got the David Lane piece? Blaine, whatever that guy's doing. Yeah, 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 I did. I got it a couple years before. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, wait. I did, I did my, I did the novel a couple years before. Before that. The novel came out in 2001 and the Blaine thing was two or three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense because you would have a lot of knowledge yeah. where they would assign it to you. Yeah, yeah. Have you written for the New Yorker too? I have not. No. Oh, okay. no. You pitch it. You're gonna pitch the New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, I pitch stuff to the New Yorker all the time, like like every other human being, you know, yeah. with, with an agent. You just uh, you think of something and you hope that yeah, yeah. but but yeah, no, not yet. Yeah. I had um I don't know if you know the author uh, Larry Doyle. He wrote I Love You, Beth Cooper, oh, yeah. and he was also on um, Simpsons, staff writer for the Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he's he's been in the New Yorker twice, nice. and so when I saw him, I was like, "How do you get the New Yorker?" And he told me, um, he sent it to the exact same email editor at blank for years and years, and then finally got one through. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So even people who've been on SNL and Simpsons for years, they, it's they still can't get into the New Yorker for years. Yeah, it's no. such a small yeah. group. It is. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's see what other rejection we can think of right now that we can go. <laughs> well, we have time for that. I mean, I just, I, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, I mean, I, I've done incredibly well with my books, but uh, I'm, you know, I, I, same thing. I get, I get rejected by everybody too. It just, yeah. You know, yeah. It comes with the territory. It just, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're in this town. You gotta. It's sort of like it's an industry. You know. Yeah. How you deal with rejection. Yeah. And I think the other thing is it does, it does go get to the point where, are you in this because you have to be, or are you in this because you want to be a certain way? You're pushing it, uh, like if you're a writer. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably the battle uh, for recognition is to make sure you don't get bitter along the way. Yeah. Probably, you know, because a lot of people get consumed by that stuff. I think people, if people have a certain thing. Like they feel like they're trying to fix a character flaw or something they didn't get as a child by becoming successful, then they're going to be bitter. Yeah. Because 
a friend of mine said something to me that was I thought really helpful. He said if if you're already happy, uh, money solves 80% of your problems. But if you're not happy, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with success or any other sort of achievement is that if you are already happy, it can only help. Right. If you approach it with resentment, you're never going to win. That's yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can... I can tell that you can tell that pretty easily in a in a person, right? I mean, just like you see it like in traffic, you know, it's easy to yeah, see. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have my own stories. <laughs> um, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really a pleasure. So fun. Yeah, it's good. Sorry, I didn't drink more, but you know. <laughs> we'll start after yeah. this. This is when the real drinking goes. Good. Nice. Cool. Glenn David Gold on Drinks with Tony. Thanks for listening. And coming up, here is an interview from the archives with filmmaker-director Kevin Smith. I caught up with him when his film Clerks 2 was released and on the road. Enjoy the interview, and thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Hi, this is Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, and all those terrible Jay and Silent Bob-type pictures. Can you imagine? That's my legacy, Silent Bob. Ugh. And you're listening to Drinks with Tony on Pirate Cat Radio, a place where I'm going to wind up working soon because Jersey Girl really didn't bat out for me. As promised at 6 o'clock, uh, I was going to play for you some of my interview with Kevin Smith, the director of Clerks and uh, also known as Silent Bob from the Jay and Silent Bob duo. Here is my interview with him. You're listening to Drinks with Tony and Pirate Cat Radio. How was it like uh, watching Brian make out with your wife during production? You know, oddly, it, it didn't bother me. It wasn't it wasn't erotic. Uh-huh. Like I wasn't sitting there going like, "Oh, this is hot, man." Because at the end of the day, it's so hollering. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, like it never it do, it didn't dawn on me because it's such a like a technical process where you're trying to like nail a shot. The majority of their making out was done in this big crane shot where we start on the building and follow these two Catholic schoolgirls who are going out and they lead us to, to uh, Dante and Emma on the swings. So we, we had this big techno crane set up on these tracks and, you know, it would almost get to those two dudes on the swing and then all of a sudden you would see a, a bump, you know, in the monitor. Like we would, it would the camera would kind of jiggle. Uh-huh. So, you know, it was like, oh, we got to start again. Fuck, let's go back to the top. So we did that, and it was about the 13th take where they kept trying to iron out this bump they kept in. We couldn't get, like, a really strong take. Um, and it was about the 13th take where they started to kind of smooth out the bump, and I'm staring at the, at Brian and Jen making out, and I'm thinking, Brian has now made out with my wife more con- con- in, in, longer in a consecutive uh, setting uh, than I have, than I ever have. Like, me making out with the wife, like, you kiss a little bit and then I'm immediately going for the panties and the bra. <laughs> yeah, but like yeah, yeah. but like he was sitting there just, you know, making out with the prospect of it going nowhere, but like just over and over and over again. And uh-huh. I was thinking like, wow, I haven't even done that with my wife. <laughs> it's so strange to me. Like, uh, you know, it kind of made me go home that night and just want to make out with her. Yeah. Just so that I could be like, well, I've made out with you as much as Brian O'Halloran did. Totally, totally. How did you go about writing the script? Was, were, have you been like taking notes for years over these characters, or did you just sit down and hammer it out? 
I mean, there were some things that were always kind of in place from the moment I started thinking about a clerk sequel, which like goes back as far as '98 uh-huh. to the end of uh, Dogma, the Tell Credits of Dogma. We tease the notion of a clerk sequel. It says Anton Bob will return and clerks too hardly clerk him. So as far back as '98, I had ideas for it, and I, there were certain elements that were always in place. I always knew. Um, you know, it would start with Dante showing up to work in black and white, opening up the shutters, seeing the fire, closing the shutters, opening them up again, and that's when we'd make our transition to color. Uh-huh. I knew the opening credit music would be nothing but flowers by the talking. I knew there would be a dance sequence on top of the roof to ABC. Um, I knew they would, the film would resolve itself with the boys coming to the conclusion that they come to in the jail sequence. And I knew the last shot you know, would make our transition from or back to black and white to the, to the tune of Soul of Silence, Misery. So there were things that, broad things, you know, I knew James Hopper would be in it, of course. And there were broad things about the movie that I had kind of broad strokes that I always knew. It wasn't until I sat down and started writing it that the meat started showing up. Like, you know, suddenly all the details started snapping into place. And when I did, it was roughly about a month to write the whole thing, and it just kind of came together pretty nicely. Wow. But it wasn't based on, like, you know, years of taking notes, you know. It was more just like, well, these are the broad strokes I want to hit. Now I just have to shave the rest in. Right, right. So so was it really easy to get back into the um, into writing for characters like, uh, like Randall and um, Dante? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, some people have been like, well, dude, you haven't been a minimum wage job for 12 years. Uh-huh. What do you know about minimum wages? And at the same time, you know, Clerks was never really, to me, a movie about minimum wagers. It was about dudes who do everything they can to pretend that they're not at work, anything they can to avoid working at their job. Uh-huh. So that mindset, for me, hasn't changed in 12 years. I, I just happen to have a career where I get to do everything I can in the world to, to not feel like I'm working. I have a job that's like, you know, I make pretend for a living. You never really feel like, oh, fuck, i got to go to work today. It's a great job to have if you've got to work. So the mindset, you know, that I had to slip into for Clerks 2 wasn't that far off from my own. Like, basically, it's Dante and Randall doing everything they can, yet again, to not think about the fact that they're at work for the day. But it's also them kind of facing the, the threshold of adulthood and how those two dudes would handle it separately and together. And that's something that I deal with all the time anyway. So it was pretty easy to slip back in there. Yeah, yeah. No, and they did such a great job. I mean, just... Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I love those guys. Uh, when you were doing production on the film, was there was there like a flood of memories and nostalgia from your first film? Um, honestly, not. I mean, even when we went back to uh, Clerks uh, to Quick Stop to shoot the ending for the, uh, in the last week of production, we all went back to Jersey uh-huh. uh, to shoot at the actual Quick Stop, and it, it wasn't like every once in a while, you know, I'd kind of look at Jeff and, and, and we'd both smile because it was like, wow, 12 years ago, we were doing the same fucking thing, shooting this movie in the wee hours of the morning in a closed quick stop. Uh-huh. Um, but it does, I don't know, it wasn't really, like the film is, I, I was always really careful to not make a movie that's a series of Dante running around going, I'm still not even supposed to be here today. Right, it doesn't right. really refer back to the first one that much. It was its own new adventure so to speak so because of that there was never this sense of nostalgia while we were making it you know you're so dialed in on making your days and trying to get the best possible performances you can that you don't really sit there going man isn't this just like old times Uh (laughs) uh-huh 
Kevin Smith on Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony, talking about his new film, Clerks 2, playing near you now. And we'll have a segment two coming up in a few minutes. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, piratecatradio.com, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Before we hit segment two of my interview with Kevin Smith, here is a track from First Black Pope called Wedding March. This is an industrial band from Italy. Go to www.firstblackpope.com for more information. This is Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. Dresden Dolls on Pirate Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, piratecatradio.com. This is Drinks with Tony. Dresden Dolls doing my alcoholic friends and getting me ready for tonight for when I meet all you guys at the El Rio so we can get our drinks on for the bar feeders and fleshies. I'm so excited. And I live about like two blocks from the El Rio. I have a feeling I'm going to need a cab. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so we're going to play segment two of the Kevin Smith interview right now. Um, Kevin Smith is Silent Bob from Jay and Silent Bob, and he's also the director of Clerks, Jay and Silent Bob, Jersey Girl. Great film, by the way. (coughs) Fortunately, it's seven minutes long, and I need to take a piss, too. So uh, that is going on right now, and then we're coming back. We're going to play music probably till about 8.30 or so. Uh, you're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony. Here's Kevin Smith. And um, and how did the uh, Moby's, the Moby or Moby's concept come together, the fast food place? Um, that's all due, with all credit due to our, our brilliant production designer Rat, Rat, Ratface, Robert Ratface Holtzman. Uh-huh. Um, him and him and Scott Purcell, who's his graphic artist, like uh, both of them had kind of built movies and the movies world for us before because we showed movies in Dogma and we showed movies again in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Right. But this time around, they were never fully fresh fleshed out. Like in Dogma, we never go inside the movies; we're only outside. And in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, we we spend a little bit of time inside, but, you know, you're kind of in and out. That's just a pit stop on the movie. This time around, it was going to be the whole flick were in that place. So they really wanted to flesh out uh, what what could be an, uh, an operating fast food joint. And, you know, it, it, it was just fun for them every day because all the flourishes they come up with, the stuff that, like, you'll never see, even if you pause the DVD one day, like the menu board and the shit that's available on the menu board. Uh-huh. I mean, he, he, everything is like its own little joke that if you catch it, it's pretty funny. Oh, uh, cool. so, yeah, they had a blast, and they created the look of movies. And, you know, I would come in with tweaks and whatnot and specific things I wanted, but generally I just kind of let them ride. So much so that, like, when we they were finally done, set decking and I stepped in there I was just like we could turnkey this operation right now and totally sell fucking murders for the rest of our lives yeah oh yeah have you thought about that <laughs> I have man and let me tell you like fuck movies the business to be in if you want to get rich in America is fast food yeah because finding a closed down burger joint that we can revamp into movies took the longest of anything in the process of making that flick to get off the ground it was just so hard. It took so long to find a closed-down Burger King or closed-down fast food joint. Cause even if you found one, you know, you had to deal with, like, Wendy's suddenly scooping it out from under you with them going, we're going to piggy-size this motherfucker. Like, it was just so difficult to find a closed fast food joint, which speaks to how fucking well fast food goes over in this country. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, that's yeah. where the money is, sir. Never mind <laughs> the movie pictures and shit. It's all about fries and burgers. Yeah, yeah. Hey, did you ever read that book, Fast Food Nation? I didn't, no, no, but oh, I look okay. forward to that movie. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It should be good. Hey, I'm so glad that uh, Jay and Silent Bob came back. Uh, are we going to see them again in future films? I don't know, you know, I mean, once before when we made James on Bob Strike Back, I was like, that's it, I'm done, never again. And I've since learned to never say never. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything, but, like, who knows? Like, maybe we'll do the next flick, and then after that, I'll feel like wanting to, you know, pull on the fake hair again and the trench coat. Right, right. But uh, right now, no immediate plan. Yeah. It seems like you're having so much fun when you're making that. I mean, when when you're when you're in that role, maybe maybe you're just a great actor. I don't know. I'm sorry, say again. No, I, you ha It looks like you guys are having so much fun in that role. Totally. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's always a. I mean, it's fun for me because I just love Jason Mewes and I think he's hysterical. So it's fun to be in the scene with them. It's also kind of difficult because I'm wearing two hats in that moment. Like I'm wearing my silent bob hat and i'm also got to wear the director hat so i'm kind of trying to listen to him in character while we're doing the scene and i'm also trying to listen to him out of character as the director going like did he deliver those lines the way i wanted him to deliver them uh do we have to go again stuff like that so it can be a little frustrating as well oh right right i didn't even think of that um, and then also you had a lot of uh, ac- great cameos in the film. Was there um, was there like a line of actors clamoring to get into a small part because this is such a cult following classic? Not, not really. I mean, basically we didn't go out no, to, to many people and we kept okay. it way under the radar. And, you know, as, as much as people do seem to love Clerks, it's not like, you know, we had A-listers clamoring to get into it. And also... The approach was that we didn't want to have too many fucking cameos because we thought they would distract or pull people out of the movie. You know, suddenly people forget about Dante and Randall and their plight because they're like, hey, check it out, Julia Roberts. Right, right. So anytime um, we we, ha- we thought about casting somebody somewhat well-known, me and Moe would have a big discussion about it, try to figure out if it was going to help or hurt the movie. Uh-huh. I mean, in the case of people like Affleck and Lee... It's a foregone conclusion because they've been in every movie we've ever made since Mallrats. Right, um, right. Somebody like Wanda Sykes, you know, you sit there going like, well, will it pull people out of the movie that she's Wanda Sykes, or are they going to groove on whatever she's joking about? Yeah. And thankfully, the chemistry between her and that comedian, uh, Earthquake, uh-huh. really, really shined through. Like, they'd only met that day, but man, they've got like a fantastic back and forth going between them and whatnot. So much so that when we were finished shooting that scene... I was like, fuck Clerks too. I just want to make a movie about the middle-aged black couple, <laughs> yeah. you know, who, 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 who write a letter to the newspaper about how poorly they were treated at movies <laughs> and then follow them throughout their day. Oh, yeah. I, I can't picture anyone else who could have done that scene better with um, Jeff, too. <laughs> yeah, he, he really pulled it off. And, you know, that's a scene that could be problematic, right? Because it is kind of like, oh, that's what could be construed as racist. But... It's the, Randall's sincerity that pulls that scene off because he, you get the fact that he honestly didn't know and doesn't believe that, like you know, porch monkey is a racial slur. Uh huh. That's cool. And, and what about working with Jeff and Brian again? I mean, I know you've worked with them a little bit here and there, but through a whole feature film, uh, were they were they better at their craft of acting? How was it directing them? 
you know, directing them was a cakewalk in terms of them being better at their craft. Yeah, I would say, you know, with age, they kind of, um, both of them kind of stepped up. But, you know, Jeff has the heavy lifting. I mean, not to take anything away from Brian. Brian's great. But when you look at something like that jail scene, you know, Jeff had to do something that he's never done on film before. Normally, he gets to be the comedic wise and make all the jokes. But suddenly, the dude was being asked to emote, you know, and kind of like tread that line between sympathetic and mawkish as, as he talks about, you know, uh, his life and, and where he sees himself and where he hasn't gone. Right, right. Right, right. Okay. And that's, that's the abrupt ending. I think I had a third segment that actually says, hey, Kevin, thanks. And he says, thanks. And then that was it. Um, so that's Kevin Smith on Drinks with Tony and Power Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, PowerCatRadio.com for the full interview and uh, the, an interview with um, the two lead actors, Jeff Randall, who plays, no wait, Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall, and Brian O'Halloran, who plays Dante, go to www.drinkswithtony.com. And um, or just go to piratecatradio.com and uh, I'll probably upload the links there as well. Yes. Anyway, so back to music. Oh, by the way, someone was in the bathroom, so I didn't take a piss. So I'm totally holding it in. This is Drinks with Tony, an apparatus with a track called Wench. You know what we really need? To stop fighting among ourselves. Something else to fight. Somebody else. 